That's what I came home to after my vacation. Um, last week, I came home to this incessant beep, beep, beep in my house. And of course, immediately, we came home really late at night, but we had to solve the problem because that noise was already starting to drive me crazy. So like any good homeowner, we went to every single room and just waited to see if it was the smoke detector in that room. And slowly we got through the rooms in our house, checking them off, and it wasn't any of those smoke detectors. And so finally we were like, well, there's only one room left. And we stood in the garage, and sure enough, it was in our garage. Beep, beep, beep. But here's the trick. We don't know where our smoke detector is in our garage. (laughs) We have no clue. We didn't know there was a smoke detector in our garage. So after that night, we said, God, we cannot find it. We looked in all the walls. We looked above our water heater. We looked all the normal places. We could not find this smoke detector. So we went back inside. I was like, we just got to go to bed. We got to go to bed. We'll figure this out tomorrow. And so we get up the next morning. We're like, okay, we've got to solve this issue because it's so loud and it's in the garage and the garage is next to the kitchen. So while you're chopping onions, all you can hear is beep, beep, beep. And you're trying to have a conversation or a phone call. And all you can hear is that beeping in the background. And it's enough to drive you crazy, drive you insane. You know that feeling. And let me tell you that the spoil alert is we never found the dang smoke detector. It beeped for like five days and then it stopped and we don't know what happened to it. We're not gonna solve it either. Cross that one off the list. But let me tell you, as it was beeping, it occurred to me how crazy making that sound was. I would be in the middle of something super normal, a task that I needed to do, and I could not, for the life of me, keep my mind straight. Every time that thing would beep, my mind would go in a different direction. I would start thinking about, well, where could it be? What if I went up into the attic? I bet it's in the attic, da, 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 da. And I just would completely divert my attention. And it started to get me thinking that, man, smoke detectors are not the only thing that's beeping in our life. Because just as much, when I'm sitting there chopping onions, I'll get a ding on my phone. And immediately I'll go over, and whatever I was doing before, cooking the soup or whatever I was doing, I'll get distracted and I'll go ahead and book that doctor's appointment that I've been meaning to book for a while. Or I'll go and I'll, oh yeah, 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 I gotta respond to that lady who just sent a text message back even though I texted her a week ago and I was thinking about it then but now I'm gonna think about it now I'm gonna make that play date that I meant to make a week ago. And my, my mind will just go in all these different directions. The pings, the alerts, the notifications, the beeping, it's everywhere. It's interrupting us. It's distracting us. It's making our minds dissolve into the scattered, distracted self. And it's kind of crazy and kind of amazing that we can have all that technology allows us, that we can literally be in two places at once. How many of y'all were on vacation this last past week and maybe you just decided to jump on that Zoom call or jump on that FaceTime in a different city, in a different place, just to resolve that one issue. Or send that quick email when you saw the response in your email from the person who works for you and you're like, oh no, that's not right, I gotta solve that real quick and I'm gonna send that email really quickly. It's kind of impressive that we can do that now, that we can be in two places at once, that we can respond to all these different inputs in our life. 
But it's also maddening, crazy-making. It's dissolving us into a way of being that isn't the most productive or honestly, the most joyous. There's been a ton of research on this in the last 10 years, and if you've been following it, then you know. Researchers like Cal Newport, who's been doing work on deep work, and there's other folks as well, who've been looking at what does it mean that we have all these interruptions, all these distractions popping into our lives, seemingly uninvited? What does that do to how we process the world? What does that change? And overall, folks, the news isn't great. The news isn't awesome in terms of how all the noise is starting to affect us. One of the studies shows that our work, the creative output that we are able to produce is actually significantly worse when we allow distractions and interruptions to come into our lives. And the reason they think is this. We only have so much attentional resources. We have a finite capacity of where we can direct our attention. And every time a distraction, an interruption, a ping, a notification comes into our life, we take our attention and we move it towards that thing and away from the thing that we were working on. But when we come back to the thing we were working on, We've already drained our resources by diverting our attention to something else. And over time, the amount of times we do that, the amount of times we click refresh on that Gmail screen, it starts to deplete our resources more and more to the point that we don't have enough resources to do creative, sustainable, productive work. All this noise, it's affecting us. It changes the decisions that we make, the everyday decisions that we make. It changes the way we treat one another because suddenly we don't have as much cognitive resources to pay attention to others. But during this series, we're going to talk about the things that you're actually thinking about, the things that it, it really affects, these big changes. Because it's the new year. It's 2024. And my bet is you came into 2024 thinking, well, I wonder what this year will bring. What new change will happen? Will I get that job that I've been seeking? Will I finally get to date someone that I really, really like? Will my kid get into the school that we're applying to? There's so much decision-making energy at the beginning of a new year. And so this, this series, we are going to talk about those big, ginormous changes and how the noise affects the way that we process those changes. Specifically today, we're gonna to be talking about big decisions. My guess is somewhere in 2024, you will have to make a big choice. You will have to decide whether to go one way or the other, whether to choose one thing over another, whether to stay put or move forward. You will have to make a choice. And the reality is that if we let it, the noise around us stops us from making wise choices. In fact, for most of us, we'll end up doing one of three things, depending on your personality, when it comes to making choices. If you're the first type of person, let's call them type A, you will start to make a choice, and the way you'll do it 
is that you'll go and research incessantly. You will ask everyone's opinion and their mother, even if you don't really care about their opinion, just to validate your choice. You will gather all this input, and that's how you're going to make the best choice. But maybe you're type B, the second type of personality. You don't really care what people think. It's never really mattered to you anyway. You're just going to make a choice, bulldoze through it, done. Decision made. But maybe you're the third, and you hate decisions. You hate making choices. And so you have learned throughout your life that if you just avoid it, eventually the decision will make itself, and you don't need to do anything. So you just wait past that deadline, wait till it missed, and then you're fine. You don't have to make a single choice. But the problem with all three of these types of decision-making is that they don't lead to the best results. They don't lead to the wisest choice. If you're type A, if you're gathering all this information, it's really easy to get misled, to get overwhelmed by the noise of the world and, and not know what you actually want. If you're type B, then you don't give credence to any of the wisdom in the world. If you're type C, well, then you're, you're not taking your own agency in your life. You're not living life as it was meant to be designed. You see, all three types of decision-making don't actually lead us to the wisest result, which is why we need a different way, a different way to silence the noise, to make wise choices. Christian wisdom has a name for all these types of decision-making, a name that we'll talk about in a moment. But when we're trying to deduce, well, what does our faith tell us about decision-making, the place we normally start is obviously the Bible. But it's interesting because actually in the Bible, decision-making is kind of fit in there in a sneaky way. It's a little bit hard to find exactly what the Bible is saying about how we make choices. But the most obvious place you can look is in Jesus' own life and the accounts of his own life in the Gospels. And that's where we're going to look today in the Gospel of Luke. You see, Jesus had to make a lot of decisions. We don't think about that normally. We think he knew everything and he just walked into his life. But actually, there's tons of evidence in the Gospels that he had to sit and make choices. He had to choose whether to follow God's will or not. He had to choose which people he would heal and why. He had to make tons of decisions. And so it's an appropriate place for us to look. Now, where we're going to look at in the Gospel of Luke is after Jesus has been born, he's kind of entered into his adult life. And for most of his adult life, he spends it, we assume, in Nazareth with his family. But then some point, around 30 years old, something changes. Jesus feels compelled to be baptized by John the Baptist. And when he does, things start to change. Strange things start to happen, like the dove coming down and the Holy Spirit. He even gets driven out into the wilderness and gets tempted there. And then when he comes back, and this is where we pick up our story, Jesus starts to do some incredible things. He starts healing lepers. He starts banishing unclean spirits. And he's doing this all kind of newly. It's never happened before. And just like you would expect, as he starts to do these things, the religious of the day start to get really upset. He's breaking the laws. He's healing on the Sabbath. Who does he think he is? And in Luke 6, all these men are starting to raise their eyebrows. No, he shouldn't do this. He, we got to plot against him. And that's where we see Jesus start to make a choice, start to make 
a big choice. Jesus has to decide whether it's worth continuing in his ministry, the way he's doing, or whether he should stop. Whether it is worth continuing his ministry, even at the risk of his own reputation and at the risk of his own life, or whether it's better to just leave things be. And what's really interesting about when Jesus makes this choice is he does none of the three things we talked about. He doesn't ask his friends for advice. He doesn't just say, ah, back off, Pharisees, I got it. And he doesn't avoid the decision. He does something uniquely different, something that I think we can learn from. So we're going to look at this very tiny verse in Luke 6 that I think will tell us what we need to do as well. So will you read with me? One of those days, so on these days when all the religious are kind of bad-mouthing him and getting mad, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. Now, this verse is really short, and actually, when we read it, we often focus on the action of prayer. We get kind of obsessed with that word pray. Well, what did he pray? How did he pray? I would like to pray that way if it gives me insight. And we kind of obsess over that word, but I actually don't think that that's the important part of that verse. When Jesus tries to make a decision, when he has a decision to make, it's not the praying that's important, although that is. It is the phrase that he went out to a mountainside. He went out to a mountainside. What we know about the geology and how it looks, the topography of this area, is that mountains were always outside of the towns. The mountainside assumes that Jesus is alone, that no one is with him, because the mountainside was also very dangerous, right? It wasn't in the town. They couldn't be protected. So we assume that Jesus is by by himself, alone with his thoughts, away from input, just him and God. You see, what Jesus is partaking in, what he is participating in in this verse, is a word that we use when we talk about Christian decision-making. And that word is discernment. Discernment is the capacity to recognize and respond to the presence and activity of God. I'll say that again. It is, discernment is the capacity to recognize and respond to the presence and activity of God. Now, you might think, hold up. What in the world does that have to do with decision-making? Recognizing God's activity in the world, how does that help us make better choices? But the thing is, it actually has everything to do with making wise choices. Because here's the deal. When you commit to living a Christian life, you commit to seeing the world as God sees it. You also commit to living as Jesus would have lived. That is the Christian commitment. But here's the deal. You cannot live as Jesus lived if you do not know where Jesus is in the world. If you cannot recognize where God is working, then you cannot do what God would do. You see, often the wisest decisions that we can ever make have to do with two simple steps. Recognize where God is at work and join in. 
I'm gonna say that again. The wisest decisions that you can make have two steps. Recognize where God is at work in the world already and then join in. If you cannot discern, if you cannot recognize where God is already at work in your life, then you will not make the wisest choice about all the things you have to decide about. And that's why we rely on those three methods of decision-making, because those are our best bet. But there is a different way, and this is what Jesus knew. And he, he actually knew this, so much so that he knew the trick to it, the starting point, to go to the mountainside. Jesus knew that if he was going to discern wisely, he had to silence the noise. He had to get away from the world. He had to cease all the inputs and just be with God. Now, why did he have to do that? I'm going I'm to tell you a little story. For Christmas, my kids received some bird feeders to hang in our yard. I'm not so enthusiastic about wild animals, but I thought I would hang them up and we'd see what happened. So my kids hung them up in the yard and immediately they go outside and start like staring at them and like kicking around and waiting for the birds to come. And I have to explain to them like, no, that's not how it works. You can't just wait for the birds to come. The birds are not gonna come if you're out there jumping on the trampoline. And they didn't quite understand that, but eventually get to this idea that the best way to wait for the birds is, is to wait inside. The birds actually need silence. They need to be by themselves, otherwise they won't come out. The soul is the same way. The part of you that is connected to God, the part of you that discerns what is right and wrong, the part of you that discerns where God is moving in the world, it's like a wild animal. You can't scare it out. You can't force it out. You have to sit and wait. It needs silence and solitude in order to come out and reveal itself to you. And you need the soul in order to make the best decisions possible, the ones that lead to your own flourishing and the ones that lead to the world's. Jesus knew that that there's no way his soul could come out. There's no way that God could interact with him if he was just trying to force it to happen. He needed silence and solitude to let his soul reveal itself. And we do too. When you are on the precipice of making a big decision, you need to go out to the mountainside. You can do that literally if you have the time and the resources. Please do, by all means. But if you don't, set a period of discernment. It can be anywhere between three to 10 days. Devote those days to discernment, which means that at the beginning, generally, of each day, you take 30 minutes to let your soul get accustomed to being out, to being silent, to thinking about God. You can throw up prayers if you need to. You cannot think any thoughts. And you devote that time to adjusting the way that you see so that you can see where God is working in the world so you know 
where to jump in. Periods of discernment will lead you through what feels like chaos in this life. But you have to take the time and the space and the patience to allow that to happen. Now, the last thing I'm going to leave you with quickly is a question I probably get the most often. It's great. I'm going to devote some time. I'm going to discern. I'm going to have my period of silence and kind of reflection. But how do I know? Like, how do I know where God is working in the world? I'm going to offer you two concepts that I find incredibly helpful. And that's where we're going to end today. So when you are trying to decide where is God working, like how do I actually know God is working, there are two spiritual concepts, consolation and desolation. Consolation, very simply, is moving towards God's active presence in the world. Desolation is moving away from God's active presence in the world. Now, those might just seem like words, but you actually have experienced both of these things. I know you have. So I'm going to describe both of these experiences. And when you experience them, that's when you know that you're either leading towards God or you're leading away. Consolation, very simply, is this experience that can come forward in a couple ways. One, you have new energy inside of you. Your vision is clear, like more long-term. You can look towards the future. It often includes other people, so it elaborates your current community. It opens doors. It feels invitational. There's kind of an open-handedness about consolation. You can sense the goodness in the world. It often helps you see others' joys and sorrows more clearly. You're often more compassionate when you're in a state of consolation. All those things sum up to God's experience in the world, how God works, how we know God works. Desolation, on the other side, is when you kind of get stuck. You turn in on yourself. You start to spiral into those negative feelings. You get stuck there. You get cut off from community. It drains you. You start to feel like you have no energy left in any of those situations. Your vision gets kind of cut short. You can't see past the next thing. That is not how God works in the world. That is you moving away from God in the world. Both of these concepts are things you know. You just have to practice naming them as such, consolation and desolation. And when you do, then that helps you make the choice. So, for example, you're deciding on a job or something upcoming. You can start to discern where consolation is moving you in the world and where desolation shows up in your life. There are two questions I often ask when people are discerning. One, for the consolation side, is what is saving your life right now? That's often the answer to that is consolation. The answer to that is where God's working. And then the other thing is what is draining you right now? The answer to that is usually what you need to move away from, where God is not working in your life. All of these are tools from a very basic practice that we call discernment. It's a way of practicing how to see the world more clearly so that you can navigate it as Jesus would. And that is my hope and prayer for you as you enter into 2024, that you learn to use the tools that are available to you, that you learn to use that you can discern well that you don't need to rely on one of those three methods of decision-making, you can stop yourself when you do. And you know that within Christian community, there is a way forward to know and follow God's presence in the world. So as we close, 
I'm going to say the thing I said in the middle about the two steps to making a good decision. We're going to end with that. And this is all, if I, you hear nothing, I hope you hear this. There are two steps to making a good decision. Two steps to making a good, faithful decision. One, recognize where God is working in your life. Where is God already working? Where do you experience consolation in your life right now? You can think of it right now. Where is God working? And then two, join in. Lean in. Do that thing. That is how you make a good decision for 2024. Let us pray. Holy and blessed Lord, you guide us. You come to us. Even though you whisper, Lord, sometimes our world is so noisy, it's hard to hear. But we ask God, we ask God that you silence the voices around us. You teach us how to lean into these ancient tools, the things that give us life and hope, that give us experiences of you, God, and that those experiences may sustain us. Lord, we come into a new year where new experiences are right on the horizon. We pray for your wisdom that we may practice being discerners and follow in your way. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.